0: Welcome to Outdoor by 4 magazine's audio edition of issue 47. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent vehicle-based adventure and ops lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also in the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. Nicholas Bratton takes us on an adventure along the Washington backcountry discovery route. Jason Bowman shares his experiences while overcoming cancer by surfing with Warrior Surf. Jonathan Hansen shares his expertise in his regular Overland column. And Daniel Thornton sits down and visits with the folks at Radius Outfitters. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by Four Magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief. When our first Gear issue dropped in 2017, we hadn't been through a global pandemic or considered its impact on the products featured in this issue or the very magazine you're listening to right now. Tangible goods have been affected across the board, across industries, and across borders. For example, the price of lumber during the pandemic skyrocketed to levels never seen before, and while lumber prices have come back down to earth, the byproduct continues to have an impact. How so? Print magazines are made from paper that come from the lumber. So the mere fact that you're listening to a print magazine means that you're listening to a product that's been painstakingly designed, printed, bound, and delivered despite the supply chain limitations and subsequent costs to get it to you. This is important to consider, particularly since I've seen several peers in this landscape discontinue producing their product, all while we've made sure not to pass our increased costs to you, our loyal readers who continue to support independently produced media in its variety of forms. And believe me, our costs have skyrocketed since the pandemic first began. Another observation is how we as consumers are making our purchases. Back in 2019, I wrote an editorial about the value of brick-and-mortar stores and supporting local shop owners by patronizing their storefronts. While I realize and value the impact technology has had on accessing goods that might not otherwise be accessible, I do believe it's a consideration when deciding the online storefront you choose when purchasing those goods. Reputable stores that have a physical brick-and-mortar storefront, along with the capacity to process online orders while supporting our community of adventurists, Is a far better choice than some random dropship retailer or influencer benefiting from the likes of amazon sure price is always one of the biggest if not the biggest considerations when making a purchase decision even more so now given the cost of goods however i firmly believe supporting the companies who support our communities including those who support outdoor by 4 and particularly those small businesses of which are the livelihood of local economies and have made the investment to build storefronts and employee workers who are passionate about their craft, is critical if communities are to continue to thrive. Adventure travel and outdoors enjoyment is a centerpiece of who we are. Let's take this time to value what goes into the products that make our adventures a success, while also being thoughtful of those around us who continue to struggle since the pandemic first began. By working together and being a bit more patient as small businesses try to return to normal capacity while also being cognizant of the struggles we've all endured, we'll have a greater appreciation of the things many of us often take for granted.
1: Since 1948, the name Warren has been synonymous with adventure. Specializing in winches, hubs, and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility, and industrial demands, WARN is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories. From the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches, WARN has the gear to get you out of any situation, every time. Preparation is a necessity. WARN. Go prepared.
2: Quest for the Crest. Variety abounds on the Washington backcountry discovery route. Words, Nicholas Bratton. Photos, Christopher Newsom. A cloud of dust engulfed me as I shut my Land Rover's cargo door. The dust swirled in the warm air, dancing in the rays of the sun that was sinking towards the silhouette of Mount Stuart. From the promontory of Lion Rock at 6,300 feet, An expanse of ridges flowed below me into the distance, their hazy shades of green brightening towards the glowing horizon. Cracking a cold beer, I settled into my chair to gaze across the Cascades. The mountains were like a sea of granite waves, frozen in their craggy tumult. It was hard to visualize from this vantage point, but eighty miles to the west lay Seattle, whose greater metropolitan area is home to 4.3 million residents. Up here, our group of six friends was grateful for the solitude, we were partway through the third section of the Washington Backcountry Discovery Route, WABDR, a a nearly 600-mile network of trails and forest roads that spans the state from Oregon to Canada through the Cascades. The WABDR is special for many reasons, not the least of which is its varied and rugged terrain within a short distance from the burgeoning cities of the Puget Sound region. Overview Established by adventure riders, the WABDR has become popular with 4x4 drivers, Organized into six sections from the Columbia River to Canada, the route winds through national forests and state lands, primarily on dirt roads with short technical stretches. Any stock 4x4 with moderate clearance will handle the trip without difficulty, but adventure vans or larger vehicles are not well suited to the terrain. Low range is helpful and a robust cooling system is essential. Rising and falling through the Cascades, the route gains over 46,200 feet along its entire length and single climbs ascend as much as 5,000 feet. Individual sections aren't long, but distances are deceiving. Adventure bikers can complete the route in as little as three days. But anything less than six days door-to-door from Seattle in a 4x4 feels rushed. The terrain limits speed and frequent vistas are too breathtaking to pass without savoring. A small group of 4x4s moving efficiently can cover a section in eight or nine hours. Realistically, plan for longer. When to go Optimal timing is late June through October. Snow blocks the route early in the season, and daylight hours dwindle in late summer. Wildfire poses a hazard, creating a smoky nuisance at best and an immediate danger at worst. During the hotter months, it's wise to cover as much ground as possible early in the day. As the route crosses, or passes close to, a major road about every hundred miles, covering two or three sections in a weekend is reasonable. What to bring? The chief demands of the WABDR are navigational. The route passes through so many unmarked intersections that without detailed guidance, it's easy to take a wrong turn. A GPS-enabled mobile device running software like Gaia and preloaded with the GPX file is indispensable. The Butler paper map of the route is helpful for big picture planning. The other main challenges are environmental. Be prepared for sun, heat, and dust. Bring a gas stove and don't expect to have fires, as burn bans are frequently in effect due to wildfire risk. Leave no trace wilderness ethics, basic navigational skills, and self-sufficiency are necessary. Jerry cans, rock sliders, traction boards, winches, and other off-road accessories are superfluous, but a chainsaw or axe is useful for clearing blowdown, especially in early season. Make sure you bring appropriate permits, as well as documentation if you want to cross into Canada. Communications. For keeping in contact with your fellow travelers, basic FRS radios are more than adequate. The rugged terrain limits the utility of more sophisticated radio systems over longer distances, but if you have them, you might as well use them. Cellular coverage has expanded along the route, and sufficient connectivity is available from most high points to transmit data. A satellite communications device will give additional peace of mind for the more remote portions of the route. Directions The WABDR is directional, south to north. But be attentive to oncoming traffic and blind corners. Passing is difficult in many places, so travel in small groups. The starting point is at the Bridge of the Gods on Columbia River. Section 2 starts near Packwood, Highway 12, Section 3 in Ellensburg, I-90, section 4 in Kashmir, Highway 2, Section 5 at Shillan, Highway 97, and Section 6 in Concanelli, near Highway 20. What to expect? The terrain is generally easy, however short technical stretches on sections 2, 3, 4, and 5 present moderate challenges. Long climbs and descents strain vehicles, and unexpected hazards may be present anywhere along the route, such as washouts, mud, or downed trees. Fire danger is a risk, and can change rapidly, so check conditions before leaving and while traveling. Major road crossings demarcate the route's six sections. Each intersection offers the opportunity to resupply, join, or leave the route making it a choose-your-own-adventure experience, customizable to your objectives and timing. Variations bypass the demanding stretches if riding up ridges on loose cobbles or scraping through overgrown vegetation don't sound appealing. The route starts by crossing the colossal Columbia River on the vertiginous Bridge of the Gods, then climbing through the dense evergreen slopes of the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. Mount Adams peaks through clearings, the first of five volcanoes that the route passes. Staggering the sections makes for a more natural flow to the journey, if you prefer to camp at cooler elevations, ending the first three days partway into the following sections also pays off with magnificent views. Primitive camping abounds along Bethel Ridge, at Lion Rock, and around Chumstick Mountain. Switchbacks climb above the Tyerton River on Section 2, leading to the precipitous edge of Bethel Ridge and vistas to the south across Rimrock Lake to Mount Adams. Emerging from the shady forests on Clement Mountain, the landscape transforms into broad, desolate hills along Umtanum Ridge. Mount Rainier dominates the skyline, and a shrubby, high desert stretches into central Washington. This is the most exposed part of the section, and can be uncomfortably warm in the heat of the day. Despite starting Section 2 at 6am, we didn't reach Ellensburg until 4pm, descending through baking basalt canyons to hayfields outside the city. After refueling, we snaked above farms and ranches to breezy ridges. A ghostly forest of scorched trees opened into a rolling alpine meadow, and we settled into our stately camp at Lion Rock. No longer blocked by a landslide, the unfamiliar passage of Section 3 beckoned. Previously, I bypassed the obstruction via technical trails above the historic settlement of Liberty. This is a worthwhile diversion for anyone with an appetite for spicier terrain. Section 3 is not without its own zest, as the landslide features off-camber terrain, rocks, and rolling undulations. A dip in the Wenatchee River at Kashmir is a welcome respite from the heat. From here, Section 4 climbs Chumstick Mountain, the longest ascent on the route. The 360-degree views from the summit spill across verdant forests, jagged peaks, and the plains of the Palouse, tumbling into steep canyons. The camping is exposed, but the sunset, stargazing, and sunrise are unrivaled. The climbing continues up Stormy Mountain before dropping to Lake Shallan, whose campgrounds and clear waters offer shade and refreshment. Section 5 ascends steeply to Cooper Mountain and swoops through charred forests to the Methow River. The gentle rise through Loop Loop Canyon with its deserted mines and open-range cattle feels like jumping a century back in time. Fast forward to the present, where a convenience store and civilized camping on sprawling lawns greets travelers in the town of Conconelli. The final section of the route is only 66 miles, but delivers on majesty, reaching its highest point at Lone Frank Pass, 6,667 feet, and traversing the Skull and Crossbones Road, whose intimidating name belies a scenic alpine landscape with a historic corral and homestead. A sharp descent levels out into a dry valley at Palmer Lake, and a few miles of pavement bring travelers to the Canadian border crossing, an official anomaly in an otherwise empty countryside. Returning to Seattle along the Highway 20 prolongs the magic through the dramatic expanses of the North Cascades. In the span of a few days, the WABDR treats travelers to cool forests, dizzying cliffs, mighty rivers, vast lakes, airy ridges barren hills, idyllic meadows, and rugged canyons. To have all of this within arm's reach of Seattle is a gift to be thankful for and is worth return visits.
1: and waves how my family a group of veteran surfers and a 500 dollars truck saved my life words and photos by jason bowman in the spring of 2021 i had it all i was running a successful business building badass trucks had a supportive loving wife my kids were grown up and well i enjoyed beers with my friends on the weekends and my house was almost paid for everything was great and then came the phone call would change everything. On May 14th, 2021, a doctor called from the VA, Veterans Affairs, to tell me I had cancer. I was 47 years old, with no other health problems and no hereditary problems. Just the phone call. Hey man, your PSA is 29. It's probably prostate cancer, okay? Call to make an appointment. Thanks. Click. That's it. Talk about a game-stopper. I had been on the top of the world. Who knew a 15-minute annual physical would forever change my life? After I hung up the phone, the room started spinning, and I fell against the truck I was working on. How the hell could this happen to me? I thought I was doing everything right. The next three months confirmed the worst. Stage four prostate cancer had metastasized to my bones. The VA painted a grim picture even assigning a death counselor to help me prepare my family for what lay ahead. My wife was by my side and tried to keep me as upbeat as possible, however, every time I started to feel a little better, the VA would pull me right back down into another pit of despair. Things were starting to look hopeless for me. After another dose of bad news, my wife got me out of town to take my mind off things. We headed to Charleston, South Carolina to an outdoor expo. It was nice to be out of my head even if only for a little while. We walked around, visiting each booth staffed with sophisticated men and women in their finest Sunday attire, selling their products and services. Then, as I rounded the corner, I noticed two scraggly-looking dudes in t-shirts and sandals. Hell, I think one of them might have been barefoot. Their hair was messy, and they hadn't shaved in probably a year. I knew right away they were fellow vets. As I approached their booth, we made pleasantries, and then one of them asked if I surfed. No, I replied, but I've always wanted to. We're with a group called Warrior Surf, one of them replied. We help vets cope with whatever they're going through with surf therapy. They handed me a brochure and encouraged me to sign up. I live 250 miles away, I thought. How could I possibly do a 12-week surf program and cancer treatments? And, to add insult to injury, I had just sold my truck in anticipation of what the future held. I didn't have reliable transportation. As I walked away, one of the guys yelled at me, Hey man, surfing is better than any medicine the VA can give you. How the heck did he know I was going to the VA? I said I'd think about it and walked off, but kept the brochure he gave me. The following Monday, after realizing this may be divine intervention, I visited the Warrior Surf website and applied. I added that I lived 250 miles away and to put me on the bottom of the list if there were a lot of applicants. Two weeks later, I got an email saying I'd been accepted to the program. So now what? It was great to be accepted into the program. It would be 12 weeks of surf instruction, yoga, and wellness sessions, kind of like group therapy. Plus, I'd be surrounded by fellow vets. But there was still that main problem. How was I going to get there every weekend? Once again, divine intervention stepped in. A buddy of mine came into the shop one day and told me about an old Ford F-250 truck abandoned in his neighborhood. The owner had died, and he was just sitting there, rotting away. The next day, I drove over to take a look at it. It didn't look good. For the past two years, it had sat where it had broken down. The tires were dry rotted and flat. The interior was full of junk. The owner was a hoarder. The window was down, allowing water in. Moss was growing on the hood. The truck had been abandoned, the same way I felt every time I went to the VA. The owner's brother showed up, saying, it's a crap truck it was crap when my brother owned it and it's crap now. Give me 500 bucks and you can haul it out of here. While I was inclined to agree with him about the truck's condition, for $500, I was willing to take a chance. I handed him the cash, loaded it on the rollback and hauled it back to the shop. It's always darkest before the dawn. As my cancer became worse, the doctors at the VA were scrambling to find a solution. I'm not knocking them. They see hundreds of vets each week with cancer and are trying to save all of us, but I was also just another head in the herd. Thank God my wife was there to set things straight. She researched diligently to find methods that work, which treatments to get, which foods to eat, exercise, mental therapy, and so on. She even persuaded me to sign up for Warrior Surf. In February of 2022, I started 30 days of chemo and shots to the stomach. Over the next few months, I could barely stand. I would go to the gym and from there go to the shop and fall asleep. I had lost 45 pounds. I needed something to motivate me and get my blood flowing again. I remembered the F-250 sitting out back, and Warrior Surf started in a couple months. I got up, walked out back, and popped open the hood. I cleaned out all of the mouse nests and tried to start it. Nothing. Then I noticed a little puff of smoke coming from the battery wire which was loose. I thought to myself, there's no way that all this truck needs to start is a new battery terminal. I cleaned the terminal, charged the battery, checked the oil, and tried again. It started. This truck had sat in the woods for two years because someone had given up on it. I pulled it inside and went to work. I changed all the fluids and gave it a tune-up. Brakes, belts, you get the idea. I cleaned out the interior, pressure washed the exterior, removed the carpet and steam cleaned it along with the seats. I even found $40 in it. I was recouping some of my money. That night, I drove it 12 miles home and actually made it. For the next several weeks, I completed a little at a time. I wasn't making a lot of money due to treatments, so I had to get creative. New shocks, I had an old lift kit lying on the shelf with shocks and springs. The truck needed a new window motor, and I found one off a parks truck in the back lot. I had bought another F-250 with a blown motor for $2,000 and took the bed and fenders off. They were the same color, so that matched right up. I then sold the rest of the truck for $4,000. So far, that truck had made me money. All of a sudden, this $500 truck was getting me back and forth to work every day with no major issues. Now, it just needed to get me to Folly Beach every weekend for the next 12 weeks. your surf. Saturday morning, 2.45 a.m. I filled my coffee cup, hopped in the franken truck, and headed south. Folly was a four-hour drive, and I didn't want to be late. Every bump and rattle the truck made as I drove down the highway made me quite nervous. Would it make it? And even if it did, could it do it over and over for 12 weeks? I was about to find out. Hell, worst case scenario, if it broke down on the side of the road, I could just walk away. Technically, I was in the black on this truck, so no harm, no foul. However, as 7am approached, I rolled into the parking lot. The Franken truck had made it to my destination well above and beyond expectations. The AC worked, the radio worked, and it rolled down the road. I was introduced to the crew and assigned to a dude named Box, a local Charleston rapper. As soon as I met him, I knew I was where I belonged. Box hung with me for the first two sessions then handed me over to the next instructor, Harold. Harold was a fellow Marine who also loved old Ford trucks. He was very patient with me and never gave up on me, just like Fox hadn't. As my surfing improved and I got to know the other surfers, we began to open up to each other. Honestly, this was something I had never done before. There were vets with PTSD, some who feared leaving their homes and others with issues way more debilitating than mine. All of a sudden, my problems didn't feel so enormous if they were, I had a support group now to help me cope. And most importantly, I had the ocean to take all my problems out with the tide. By week six, I was surfing on my own, but felt I had hit a wall and couldn't progress. And the waves seemed to be getting bigger. I'd pop up, fall off, pop up, fall off. I was ready to quit, but my family, my instructors, and even my truck were keeping their end of the bargain, so I'd better keep mine. As I laid there on my board, I remember what my wellness coach always said when I was out there. "Motion is the lotion. Kind of cheesy. I thought at first, but then it made sense. I closed my eyes and felt each wave pick me up. Down, up, down, up. I started letting all my problems go and just thought about one thing. Surfing. All of a sudden, boom. I had caught a wave. Then another, and another, and another. All of a sudden, I couldn't not catch a wave. I was in the zone. After the 10th or 12th wave, I was feeling the stoke. As I caught the last one, I experienced true synchronicity when I looked over to see two dolphins riding a wave right beside me. I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I definitely felt a higher presence at that moment. As I continued my surf session, I continued going to my monthly checkups at the VA. Every month, something miraculous happened. My cancer started going away. By the end of my surf sessions, it was almost undetectable. Did the treatments work? Yes. Did surfing contribute? I truly believe it did. The truck had performed perfectly for the entire 12 weeks, just like I had asked it to do completed the program, and waited a couple of months to go back down for graduation. But on a drive home from work, the oil light came on, and the motor seized. The oil pump gave out. I towed it back to the shop and parked it right where I did the first time. My wife suggested I just park the truck out and find another one. I agreed. But when the first buyer showed up with a cutting torch to get parts off it, I just couldn't do it. This truck hadn't let me down all summer. It had gotten me to and from the beach every weekend. It even waited until I was home before it gave out. There were people in this world that had not given up on me, and I felt I owed the same to this truck. I realize it's just a huge piece of metal, but this truck got me on my feet again, helped restore my energy, and even made me a little extra cash when times were slow. How could I give up on it? The next day, I ordered a motor and put it in. On graduation day, Harold asked me to take a look at his truck. As I walked over, I saw a longboard in the back. Nice board, dude, I said. It's your board now, he replied. Just keep surfing. It was definitely a moist eye moment. I now try to go to the shore at least once a month. If nothing else, I go to just hang out with everyone. I never doubted my wife would help save me, but who knew a bunch of surfing vets in a beat up truck would assist? Never give up. About the Warrior Surf Foundation The Warrior Surf Foundation is a nonprofit helping hundreds of vets get back to normal by providing free surf therapy, wellness coaching, yoga, and community to vets struggling with a variety of mental and physical ailments. If you or someone you know is seeking guidance from a community committed to providing support, please visit their website at
0: www.warriorsurf.org. Destination Overland by Jonathan Hansen. Now and then, it's good to be reminded of the laws of physics. A few months ago, I conducted a training weekend for a couple who had recently purchased a well-optioned sportsmobile. They wanted to become familiar with its capabilities, and theirs, To learn recovery techniques, and especially learn the use of their winch, an accessory new to them both. We spent the first day, Friday, driving and marshalling, which hugely improved the confidence of both of them. In addition to opening their eyes as to just how capable a sportsmobile can be despite its size. Saturday was a winching day. I'd picked a dead-end bit of trail where we wouldn't be in anyone's way, or run into anyone who happened to be passing. It was a hill steep enough to actually work the winch, but not so steep as to be intimidating. The Sportsmobile was equipped with a worn 12,000 pound winch and synthetic line. For an 11,000 pound vehicle, that's a marginal if one applies a standard 1.5 times GVW formula for speccing a winch's capacity. But we discussed ways to compensate for this by running out as much line as possible to reduce the number of wraps in the drum, which helps retain full power, and especially, rigging a double-line pool whenever possible. The only trees available were both marginal in size and behind a barbed wire fence, so I set up my Toyota FJ40 as an anchor, facing down the hill at the top of the slope. It was then I realized I'd forgotten my set of folding safe-jack chocks, the substantial ones I normally use for winching. All I had with me were the smaller folding chocks I keep in the vehicle for a tire-changing duty and the like. No problem, I figured. I set the folding chocks in front of the front tires of the Land Cruiser, and we lugged a couple substantial rocks to put in front of the rear tires. I was in low range, reverse selected, engine off, and parking brake pulled out stoutly. The first single line pull proceeded without drama. The winch did not seem to be working over hard, although I remarked that it was one of the loudest winches I'd ever heard. So we re-rigged for a double line pull running the Sportsmobile's line through a 7P recovery ring linked to one of the 40's front recovery hooks and back to the aluminous bumper of the van. I stood to one side and directed while Emmett sat in the Sportsmobile's driver's seat and operated the winch remote. He began to spool in and the van crept slowly up the hill for about five feet. Then a the front tire happened to hit a bit of the rock ledge I'd failed to notice, perhaps eight inches high. The Sportsmobile came to a momentary halt But the winch, of course, didn't. Even as I was raising my fist to give the stop signal, I turned to see my 40 pull gently but inexorably over the folding chocks, which collapsed if they'd been soda cans. Behind them, the rocks in front of the rear tires had held, but were themselves being dragged with the vehicle. The winch stopped, and I signaled Emma to apply the brake and shift to park, then let out some slack in the winch line. The Land Cruiser had only moved about 8 inches. Had we for some reason continued to power the winch, it would simply have kept on being dragged slowly across the ground. There was no chance of it careening out of control. Nevertheless, it was a good lesson in the force of an 11,000-pound vehicle and a roughly 24,000-pound equivalent double-lined winch can put on a 4,000-pound vehicle, even on a moderate incline. The math is pretty simple. What could I have done differently? Having the larger and sturdier chalks, obviously, or at least using big rocks in place of the small chalks, Even putting the rocks we did use in front of the front tires, and the small chalks under the rear tires, might have made a difference, as the front of the Land cruiser was being pulled slightly downward in addition to forward. A more secure option would have been to daisy-chain the 40 by its back bumper to the base of one of the trees on the other side of the fence, with the endless sling I had on hand. Pull forward until the sling was tensioned, then chalk. If you expect to use folding chocks for anything more than tire changing, skip the light duty $20 models, especially need I say the plastic ones, and look at the sturdy versions available from SafeJack. If you have room for non-folding jacks, there are plenty of suitable welded options as well as robust variants crafted from durable recycled materials. However, avoid designs that place the tire too far forward on the chalk. On anything but very firm substrate, they can actually pivot and tip the tire right over the top under tension. Ask me how I know. And of course, there's always the big rocks, but we're pros here, right?
1: Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from 4-Wheel Campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, 4-Wheel Campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, 4-Wheel Campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com.
3: Around the Campfire. Outdoor by Four visits with Radius Outfitters. Words by Daniel Thornton. Photos by Cody West and Tristan Manson Perone. Cody West and Asa Engstrom are the founders of Radius Outfitters, a company whose products are thoughtfully designed specifically for outfitting vehicles including vans and storage needs to keep your gear organized while on an outdoor adventure. We recently had the opportunity to visit with Cody tell us about his company and experiences leading to its formation. Did you grow up spending time outdoors?
0: Absolutely.
3: I grew up on the central
0: coast of California on the Carmel River with lots of trips to Big Sur. We camped, fished, hunted, mountain biked, and later got into crude overlanding vehicles and dirt bikes.
3: How did your early life experiences shape your interest in who you are today?
0: I've got to hand it to my dad for creating an environment in which we had space, a great shop and freedom. I remember not being able to afford an extra set of wheels for my Honda 250R. I wanted to flat track it so I convinced the mechanics at the local golf course to give me some old golf cart wheels with turf sires. Somehow, I got them home and was able to drill the proper lug pattern into the wheels in my dad's shop. There are a lot of stories like this one that instilled a sense of creativity, resourcefulness, and independence.
3: What led to you starting Radius Outfitters? It was
0: 2014 and I was upfitting my first sprinter. As an engineer and a builder, I remember being thoroughly impressed by the number of tools and skill sets I would use each day during the upfit. I think a lot of folks were having similar thoughts at the time. How the hell do we make this amazing vehicle format accessible to the masses? I talked to my business partner that I do everything with and convinced him that there was a market here. We started by patenting our arcade sleeping system and fortunately got into soft goods quickly as a way to round out our product
3: line. How did you decide to create products supporting storage and organizing around outdoor adventure? What is your design influence?
0: We knew early on that the customer upfitter market was going to saturate pretty quickly. We thought we'd get bogged down with individual clients and custom designs. We decided we liked the idea of designing and selling practical, functional, and well-made products for the higher-end DIY crowd and the overlanding crowd in general. Sometimes our aesthetic is driven by constructability. Other times it's pure ego and cool factor. We get teased often for being engineers. I think that comes through in our aesthetic sometimes. Seems like people love it. And one more thing, my partner and I hate rattles and squeaks so we naturally gravitated towards making silent storage for vehicles.
3: What has been one of your favorite products?
0: My favorites to use are the gearboxes, the totes, and my arcade sleep system. My favorite to design and bring to market was the gear loft. It looks so simple and elegant, but figuring out the third tubing bend was a real challenge for us. When we finally got it right, we all shared a lot of excitement. It's been very popular and we just launched one for the Ford Transit. And I have to give a shout out to Lewis on this one.
3: Today, there are various types of vehicles being used as platform for adventure. What made you focus on the Sprinter van as a platform?
0: We started with Sprinter because it seemed like the obvious choice in the early days. In all honesty, my partner and I are both German car geeks so that might have played a role. We've since been expanding our product line to transit in the general Overland community. A lot of our products are not vehicle specific. We chose our name carefully so that we can build whatever we are interested in at the time.
3: You have some great products that are multi-purpose. What other ways have you heard about your products being used outside of camping and vehicle-based adventure?
0: Unsanctioned child sleeping lofts, tequila collection organization, camera storage, firewood hauling, adult jungle gyms, dog toy storage, the list goes on.
3: Tell us about the social purpose of Radius Outfitters and why it is important for the company to support other organizations.
0: Honestly, I blame my wife. She's opened my eyes to how enjoyable and rewarding it is to help others, especially when it taps into people and places that you care deeply about. If I hadn't found my wife, Maja, I think I might not have known what social purpose, B Corps, and thoughtful leadership mean. I'm beyond thankful.
3: Can you give our readers any hints of new products that you have coming down the pipeline?
0: Stay tuned for some exciting colors and our expansion into some different, but complementary markets.
3: If you can learn more about Radius Outfitters curate their variety of products for your next vehicle-based adventure by visiting their website at www.radiusoutfitters.com. Editor Note, the Around the Campfire series is brought to you in collaboration with our friends from 67 Designs, proprietors of the finest mounting solutions for your mobile devices, whether in the backcountry, around town, and at home. Learn more about 67 Designs by visiting www67
0: Here's what's coming up in issue 48 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Cohen Wubbles and Karen Mishgay Viss take us on an Overland adventure through Tajikistan. Ben Easley introduces us to the new California Crest Trail, Frank Ludwell tells us about Outdoor by 4's Project Himalayan Adventure Motorcycle, and Andrea Ludwell explores the healing power of solo travel. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories. And join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 in the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram and Facebook at OutdoorX4, on TikTok and YouTube at OutdoorX4 Magazine, and by following the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.